excellent. Black is pain, black is joy, black is evident. It's working twice as hard as the people you know you're better than because you need to do double what they do so you can level them. Black is so much deeper than just African American. Our heritage been severed, you never got to experiment with family trees. Can they teach you about famine and greed? They show you pictures of our family with their needs. Tell us we used to be barbaric, be an actual queens. Black is watching child soldiers getting killed by other children, feeling sick like, oh shit, this could have happened to me. Welcome back to another episode of I've Been Thinking About It. My name is Christian Yearwood, your host, of course. That song was called Black by Dave. Dave is a UK artist who I enjoy very much. So you could go check his music out. Um, uh, On today's episode, I want to discuss um, big data. I want to discuss the collection of that data. Um as well as the overall industry, which trades in the selling of behavioral and predictive data. Um, we'll also touch on some of the consequences this massive data collection and storage has um, in terms of our privacy rights as global citizens. And we'll also discuss that in relation to the rise of what some would call Aurelian surveillance states, right? Uh, before we begin, I just want to say, um, with all that's going on in the world, uh, I hope that everyone is safe. I hope that everyone is uh, basically carrying out the proper measures to, to protect themselves. If you're in the United States and you're participating in protests, I hope that you do so safely. Uh, but with that being said, uh, I would like to begin. So... Of course, in the last 20 to 25 years, uh, society has been rapidly transformed into a very tech-dominant and dependent society, right? Living in a world with COVID-19, we see that even more. Entire countries' education systems are being moved online. Uh, universities all around the world are currently searching for ways to move their classes and, and learning online. And we're also seeing businesses forced to make that transition, um, especially here in Barbados, uh, where we have generally been behind on imp- implementing certain cutting-edge technologies, right? Um, I know for a fact the government of Barbados is currently working on implementing a digital identification card, as well as moving a lot of its um, information and administrative services online, right? Technological progress um, has transformed our lives as a species and and it's basically made a lot of things easier and more accessible, right? It's easier to pay for products than ever before. It's easier to talk with a friend halfway across the globe than it was ever before. Cell phones got smarter and cheaper for the most part, um, unless it's an iPhone. (laughs) But seriously, uh, processes that took a year um, they can now be done in significantly less time due to innovation in science and technology fields, right? In a few clicks, you can order anything from fresh vegetables to a flat screen TV, hair products that come straight to your door the next day, right? You can order textiles from China um, on AliExpress, and they arrive at your door in a few days, right? That is a massive change that only took place within the last 20, 25 years or so. So now we live in an era of ultimate convenience, 
You want to start a podcast? Download Anchor and record from your room like I do. <laughs> you want to listen to Whitney Houston's entire discography? You can pay a streaming service less than $10 a month to listen to her music whenever you want straight from your phone. That same $10 also gets you the music of any artist that has ever released music on a major record label. From Snoop to Michael Jackson to the Fugees. That was a pretty ridiculous deal. $10 and you get unlimited music, right? Social media apps are free to use, right? Um, I mean, I can't believe they're free. A lot of us can't believe they're free. The amount of entertainment um, information that we um, absorb uh, from these social media platforms, right? And... That's a very important point to make, right? In a world where nothing is free, in a world where at every corner people and resources are being exploited for capital gain, there has to be some hidden game that is being played on us in exchange for this era of ultimate convenience. And that is where big data comes in. So big data is basically uh, collected on a mass scale and is generated by anything from a dashboard camera in your car, to a barcode scan at the supermarket, to a Facebook post of your daughter's first birthday, right? Data is being collected on everything we do. What type of toilet paper we like, a tweak to a design of a product we might want, what are our hobbies, do we like sports, do we like daytime TV shows, are we more likely to gamble? All of this is data that is being collected on us by various tech companies such as Google, Amazon, YouTube, Facebook, Microsoft, and, you know, the list goes on, right? And this is very important, right? They create the technology we use, right? They collect the data we generate from using their technology, and they sell the data to whoever has an interest in buying data on a specific group of people or individual. So, if I'm interested in Pokemon trading cards, right, they might send me an advertisement for, a, I don't know, a, a, a chat room or forum to where I can go and exchange and trade Pokemon trading cards, right? No, that's a very simple idea, right? Okay, you... We have data collected on you. We know the type of person that you are. We know your hobbies, what you're likely to buy, what products you're likely to buy. So we're going to direct you in this place via an ad, a targeted ad. We're going to direct you in this place um, so that basically you would be enticed to spend money or, or to do business or to consume a certain product or service, right? So, it's very important to understand, right, that this data is freely given to them, right? We freely give our data to them based on the very crucial fact that we buy the technology that they make, right? They're the ones creating technology. They're the ones creating the software. They're the ones creating the various web services that we use in our day-to-day lives. And that is how they get our data, right?
So when you sign up for a website, right, I know very few of us read the terms of agreement. I certainly don't. And it's quite impossible to do so, right? Um, they're extremely long. I mean, they're thousands of words long. And if you were to sit and try to sign the terms of agreement for every single product or service you wanted to use, you know, you'd be there forever. You wouldn't actually even get the chance to use that service because you would just be stuck reading their terms of agreement, right? But the point I'm trying to make here is that we freely consent to things that we don't even know we are consenting to, right? We freely give Facebook or any other tech company for, for that matter. We freely give them our data and we are quite happy to do so um, in exchange for their services, right? After all, Facebook, etc., are free to use, um, but the cost lies in the ads that you receive and the free data you give to these companies. Data which is very valuable, right? Data which is sold and exchanged between companies in all different industries, right? Automobile industry, beauty, uh, beauty industry, architectural industry, all of these different industries and companies, they have a huge interest in our data, right? The reason for this is that they want to know how can we make a better OD for people to drive? What types of features on the new game console do people need or want? You know? This type of data is used to make predictions about our character, what products we like, what type of person we are, and they basically want to understand, they basically want to better understand us as consumers, right? It's very important to business, consumer behavior, right? So before, let's say 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to, to have this um, rich predictive and, and behavioral data to improve their products and services, right? They would have to take, they would have to hand out physical surveys or they would have to, you know, I guess do like public uh, forums where you come and, I guess, criticize a certain product or service or uh, try to offer improvements um, to that product or service, right? But no, these companies, they don't have to do that, right? They don't have to do that because we give them our data freely through using these products and services, through using technology, right? And that is a major change that has happened um, in terms of companies being able to understand consumer behavior better, right? So... The algorithms and predictive analysis models um, that are being used to do this, right? They're being extremely, they're becoming extremely accurate, accurate in terms of predicting our characters and, and consumer behaviors as technological process um, progress increases rapidly, right? If you clicked on this podcast episode, I can see exactly which state you're in. I can see what province you're in. I can see what parish you're in, and and of course I can see what country you live in, right? Now, of course, I can't pinpoint your exact location, um, and I have no interest in doing that, right? <laughs> but what about the burger chain nearby who wants to send you ads in order to entice you to spend money at their restaurant, right? 
they will find out where you live and they will send you ads um, because they know, one, that you are nearby their burger chain and two, you might love burgers, right? All of that data, sorry, all that information about you as a person, where do you live? If you live close to my store, well, I'm going to send you an ad for this store. And I'm going to also send you a coupon uh, as to entice you to leave your home and walk and go to that restaurant or, or burger chain or whatever and spend money, right? That is the business of targeted advertising, right? And I think we're all very familiar with this, right? So I'm going to ask a question. Have you ever searched a product, right, or spoke about a product in real life or in text and and then a few hours later or a few days later, you would have received an ad on Instagram or YouTube about the same product shortly after. So you did a Google search on hair products and then two hours later, you go watch a video on YouTube and you receive advertisements for hair products right that was not a coincidence right and i think we've all realized and and pick up on that that it's not really a coincidence right and we kind of have some understanding of what is going on right so of course these are targeted ads right a company targets you specifically right because they know that you're the type of person that's gonna buy hair products, that's gonna buy um, mirrors or buy um, a baseball or buy you know any type of product that you as an individual gravitate towards, right? And you know, there's some people who often say, "Well, you know, I don't mind this collection and use of our data because." I like the targeted ads, right? And I like the convenience of it. You know, if I talk about a product that I really want and somebody sends me an ad for this product that is, you know, cheap and, and good value for money, then I like that. I benefited from that, right? I, I, I benefited from the targeted ads, right? That is some people's viewpoint, right? Um. I think that a lot of us at times, you know, we enjoy the convenience of these targeted ads. And I myself has you have used products and services um from ads that were specifically tailor-made to target me, right? So <laughs> funny enough, I was once doing uh, some research on the very same topics that are being covered in today's podcast, right? And I was sent an ad on YouTube from NordVPN urging me to protect my privacy and internet footprint, right? <laughs> so a VPN is basically a way for you to protect your data and your digital footprint, so to speak, uh, when using the internet and various platforms like Google, Instagram, etc. right? You know, but then there's some people who argue that, well, most people really don't care enough about their privacy or data. Um to use a VPN to protect it, right? But I think that's a little harsh because I honestly believe that most people don't even know how valuable their data is, right? And most people don't even know how it's being used 
to make millions um, of dollars by companies across the world, right? It's not like people can visibly see all of this going on, right? It's very much hidden from the human eye, right? Um, we don't work at tech companies, right? Majority of us don't work at tech companies. Majority of us don't make our algorithms. Majority of us don't, uh, sorry, design algorithms. Majority of us don't design these um, predictive analysis models, right? So we don't understand how a lot of these processes work, right? We're not privy to the information about how our data is being used, right? We have no idea who is buying our data and we have no idea what they're using it for. And we're basically completely left out of this process, right? As regular citizens. So as far as we're concerned, there's nothing even happening and there's nothing to worry about, right? Just sign the terms of agreement and enjoy the service. That is the reality of how majority of us live, right? These companies make the technology, we buy and use the technology, they take our data that we freely give to them, and they sell it and use it to make products tailor-made to our liking. They then use targeted ads to sell you those products which were tailor-made for you in the first place because it was developed using your behavioral data, right? So they collect the data, they make money from selling and exchanging the data, right? So Ford Motor Company buys your data and then they take your data and use it to make products, to improve their products, to improve their cars, which will be sold back to you, right? <laughs> And you receive zero dollars from this process, right? They're making a ton of money. A ton of money is being made, right? That's why a lot of people wonder, like, man, how influencers make their money? Like, you know, how how is this whole business of social media? How like how do they make their money? We don't because we don't actually see it happening, right? But this is the business of big data, right? This is the business of um yeah, this is the business of big data, right? And I'm going to play a clip for you guys now. Um, and this clip was taken from an interview uh, that Shoshana Zuboff did on Democracy Now. So Shoshana Zuboff is an academic who has written um, quite a few books or so and articles and stuff like that on what she calls surveillance capitalism, right? So I'm going to play a clip from you guys from Shoshana Zuboff right now. Surveillance capitalism departs in many ways from the history of, of market capitalism, but in a fundamental way, it is continuous with that history. We know that capitalism has evolved by taking things that live outside of the market, bringing them into the market dynamic, transforming them into commodities that can be sold and purchased. So famously, industrial capitalism claims nature for the market. It is reborn as real estate, as land that can be sold and purchased. It claims work for the market, reborn as labor that can be sold and purchased. So surveillance capitalism continues this tradition, but with that dark twist. In our time, surveillance capitalism claims private human experience for the market dynamic. 
as a free source of raw material that is translated into behavioral data. These data are then combined with advanced computational abilities to create predictions, predictions of what we will do, predictions of our behavior, predictions of what we will do now, soon, and later. And these predictions are then sold to business customers in a new kind of marketplace that trades exclusively in human futures. This was first invented in the context of online targeted advertising at Google back in 2000, 2001, in the teeth of financial emergency during the dot-com bust. But this same economic logic has now traveled not only from Google to Facebook and throughout the tech sector, but now throughout the normal economy into virtually every economic sector. Oh. What Shoshana Zuboff just touched on there is very important, right? She made a point that no, today companies are trading exclusively in human behaviors, right? So, sorry, human futures, sorry, right? And this is why uh, you will hear a lot of people saying that we no longer have privacy, right? You know, people will say, well, privacy is a thing in the past, right? And the reason for this is that we have allowed multinational corporations to access every single aspect of our human experience. Um, and we've done this in exchange for things like Face ID, Snapchat filters, you know, social media use, um, you know, all these different web services that we use, all the different technology that we use. We have exchanged our private human experience to use uh, these various services and, and products, right? Our private data, our Google searches, our personal photos, and countless other sources of data are harvested by these companies um, in order to better understand us as human beings, right? They have infiltrated our everyday human experience. That is not something that we should take lightly, right? So, of course, you know, there are microphones and new de devices like the Google Home or Amazon's Alexa. Of course, there are microphones in our smartphones, uh, tablets, etc., right? So, these, these uh, devices like, for example, the Google Home, right? The Google Home... Uh, they can turn off your lights. Um, I know Amazon's Alexa definitely could turn off your lights and some people have it hooked up to their fan and, you know, all of these voice commands that we use um, basically to turn off and on lights or, you know, to turn off the security system, etc. right? No, <laughs> as a child, right, when I used to read and, and read about stuff like this right in or or i watched a sci-fi movie you know which described technology that was capable of of doing stuff like this right like voice control technology right i genuinely used to be mind blown right and i couldn't wait um to use technology like this right and in less than 15 years right that's gone from a fantasy to our reality right um, 
but you know, as I grow grow grew older, um, and I began to research and and read more about, you know, the specifics of these technologies, right, and the societal impacts that these technologies um can have on us, right? I began to saw to see, sorry, <laughs> the potential for them to, to be used for exploitation, right? Buying a product that is constantly listening to our surroundings, waiting for a command to turn on music or to turn the lights on, you know, that became a symbol of a very shocking reality we are facing in the world today, right? The fact is that our privacy rights as citizens have essentially disappeared within the space of 20 or so years, right? We have subjected ourselves to technology and its creators while they capitalize on our private human experiences, which we have freely consented to by buying the products and services these companies provide. And just to bring home that point and, and to hammer it home a little bit, I'm going to play another clip from you. Uh, and this time this clip was taken from a VPro documentary um, on surveillance capitalism and Sosana Zuboff is basically explaining uh, the specifics of surveillance surveillance capitalism at length. So if you want to delve into the specifics of surveillance capitalism and Shoshana Zuboff's ideas, I highly recommend that you watch this VPro documentary. It can be found on YouTube. So without further ado, I'm going to play that documentary for you here now. Uh, two legal scholars, they're at the University of London, and they analyze the privacy policy, how we give our consent to these devices, right? <laughs> so they analyze these documents for one Nest thermostat. What happens is the thermostat collects data. It sends those data to third parties and those third parties send data to third parties ad infinitum, an infinite regress, where your data is going goodness knows where. And no company takes responsibility for what the third parties that it's sending your data to may do with your data. Ness will say, if you don't want us to take your data and you don't want us to send it on to third parties, that's okay, but be aware that without your data, we will stop supporting the functionality of your thermostat. We will stop upgrading the software. Be aware that the smoke detector may no longer work. Be aware that the, the pipes in your home may freeze. So now the functionality of the device is held hostage to your agreeing to the privacy contract. And they say, by the way, even if you agree and we maintain the functionality, we're sending it to these other third parties and they're going to use it the way they choose and we take no responsibility for what they do with it. All right. So now these two scholars do an analysis of one Nest thermostat and what they conclude is that given these arrangements, any self-respecting consumer anyone who's even a little bit vigilant about their consumption habits should review a minimum of 1,000 privacy contracts 
in order to install just one single Nest thermostat in your home. Tana Zuboff explains, right? We make this trade-off with our data. Um, and if we don't make this trade-off, if we say, well, you know, we don't want you to have our data, then, as she said, they will st stop supporting the functionality of our devices, right? So your thermostat will no longer work as it should work uh, if we are not, if these companies are not able to, to, to extract your data and, and sell it. And when they sell it, we have no say in who they sell it to. And these companies also take absolutely no responsibility for what your data is used for, right? Now, that is absolutely absurd, right? Um, so, majority of us, you know, we use devices with microphones in them. Um, and we actually have no idea of knowing whether the microphones turn on at any random time and listen to our conversations, right? Like, we have no way of knowing that, right? Um, but with technology like the Google Nest and other voice-controlled home systems, right, these companies no longer need to remotely turn on our devices when we are not suspecting it, right? Not saying that that has been the case all the time where our microphones are turned off, turned on remotely and listen to us without us knowing, but they no longer have to do that if you buy, for example, Alexa or the Google Home or any of those, you know, voice control home systems, right? You no longer they no longer have to do that, right? They simply have to entice us to buy those products, right? And then we freely give them microphone access to our homes, right? So they can then extract data from our literal voices, right? And of course, they can extract uh, data from the private conversations that you have within your home, right? Um, and I want us to seriously think about the trade-off that we're making here, right? Um, we need to ask ourselves, you know, if that trade-off is really worth it. And if you believe that that trade-off is worth it, do you trust these companies and groups to use our data in ways that do not exploit us or manipulate us, right? And I think at that point, <laughs> you kind of lean in on the, on the morality um, of a multinational corporation that is legally obligated to maximize profits, right? And as we've been discussing throughout the episode, you know, we have no idea who our data is being exchanged to, and we have no idea of knowing why it is being exchanged. Um, any group of people with interest in our data can buy data about us, and then they can use it for whatever purpose they desire, right? Um, and, you know, this has dangerous implications for all of us around the world specifically in terms of electoral politics and in terms of the protection of our democratic rights and freedoms, right? Now, the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018 is one of many examples that can be used to demonstrate the dangers that this type of surveillance capitalism and the overall invasion of privacy we experience today pose on our democracies, right? 
basically, um, a private company was collecting data on voters in a specific area and then sending them targeted ads and information repeatedly, you know, um, which would sway their political de decision making, basically, right? So it's not just our consumer decision making that companies are able to influence with our behavioral data, right? But they're also able to influence important political decision making that affects our lives and fellow citizens, right? And we can be manipulated through the use of our data, right? So, <laughs> you remember when um, Mark Zuckerberg had to sit and explain himself before federal lawmakers in the U.S.? You know, that's when we really started to hear about the now-famous term fake news um, that the President of the United States loves to throw around so much, right? Everything is fake news now, right? But the real crux of that issue is that we have massive tech companies like Facebook, um, which are impossible to actually regulate, right? Um, and the first reason for that is that these technologies and these technological processes, they are relatively new to the human species, right? Um, and there are actually no laws which govern these matters, right? So before slavery was legal, it was a legal practice, right? We then had to create laws um, to abolish slavery, right? It's the same thing right now, right? We have new technology, new technological process, new ways of interacting with human beings. So we need new laws to govern these things, right? Because these things didn't exist before now. So we need completely new laws um, to tackle these issues. And if you, by chance, get, by, um, by any chance, get to listen to the complete VPRO documentary um, on surveillance capitalism, you will hear Shoshana Zuboff's, Zuboff um, directly speak on that very issue. Um, and she says that, you know, we need new laws to regulate uh, this industry because this is a new industry. These are new processes. These are new ways of life, right? Um, so we need completely new laws and, and new regulations, right? Um, so obviously the solution to that problem is to make laws, um, based not on corporate profit margins, but based on protecting the value of human lives and ensuring that their human private experiences are not being exploited and we're not being manipulated and further put at an, an disadvantage, right? So... Why is it that corporations can invite our invade our private experiences and extract data from our photos, extract data from our posts, our Google searches, etc., right? And then they can then claim our private experience as their property and then they can sell it as they please, right? Why does that happen? Well, Silicon Valley and the very same people in charge of regulating them in the U.S., the U.S. Congress, right? They have a very close um, and collaborative relationship, right? So 
if you go on a, a, a lovely website called opensecrets.org, um, which is a resource for tracking political spending in the United States, we can actually see the amount of money these large corporations donate um, to influence policymaking in the U.S., right? So per election cycle, right, these are the numbers that tech companies spend basically legally bribing politicians who are then supposed to regulate them, right? In 2016, tech companies spent $338 million, right? In 2018, that figure was $236 million. And this year, 2020, these figures were $180 million as of right now. And those totals are totals which have been given to Congress and Democratic and Republican uh, politicians, right? And I mean, these are unbelievable uh, sums of money which are being given um, to U.S. politicians, right? And this money is given to them to perpetuate the exploitation of surveillance capitalism, right? These are legal bribes, right? Um, so... In my mind, it's very clear to see that, you know, the data being extracted from our usage of these social media platforms is being weaponized against us in the real world in order to influence the way we might vote, how you might feel on a particular issue, what type of products you might buy, what type of services you might be inclined to use, what type of content you consume on the internet. All of that can be manipulated through the use of our private data, right? So fossil fuel companies, you know, they're famous for pushing fake news <laughs> via online think tanks and, you know, other mainstream media publications in order to downplay man-made climate change, right? Which is a very serious threat that we all face globally, right? But these companies understand us so well, right? through our data that we freely give to them. They, un they understand us so well that, they, you know, they know which people are actually susceptible to believing certain types of information, right? So they can send you, say my name is John Brown, and I'm susceptible to information which is, quite frankly, racist or sexist or bigoted, right? These companies can send you targeted advertising or content which fall in line with your worldview right so that you no longer see information that conflicts your biases right you see information that confirms your biases right so if you believe that climate change is a chinese hoax then you're gonna get conspiracy videos that pardon me that say that climate change is a chinese hoax right that is how the algorithms um, kind of work, right? They kind of feed you. And I think that we all have experience with this in our daily um, use of the internet, right? You know, if you are someone who watches a lot of sports videos on YouTube, the algorithm is going to keep sending you sports videos. It's not going to send you videos of, you know, some random thing that you have no interest in, right? It's going to keep sending you content that you are interested in because it 
knows that you're interested in it because it has studied you and has collected data on you for years and years, right? Um, so they can manipulate us um, in ways that they could never um, do before, right? They can make us buy into certain information. They know our weaknesses, our cognitive dissonances, so to speak, right? Um, so that is a huge problem, right? So you, you, you can have a political party who knows that you're likely to vote in a certain way and they could kind of feed you ads and feed you campaigns and they could literally influence the way that you vote and then that can also influence your life right and then the lives of your fellow citizens right as is the case in the cambridge analytica scandal right uh so this is this exploitation and manipulation of our data is not just private tech companies that are using um, our data to do so, right? It is our governments that are doing that. It is political parties. It, it is uh, political groups who are using our data to exploit us. Remember, Facebook takes no responsibility for who buys your data and what they might use it for, right? So what's stopping political parties from doing that? Absolutely nothing, right? So in this current pandemic, right, that we're living in, we're living through a pandemic. I don't know if you forgot. <laughs> it's, it's quite easy to forget with all that's going on um, in the world right now, right? But in this pandemic, several governments and tech companies, you know, they were advocating for people to start downloading apps and using apps that would track the coronavirus, right? Um, these apps would help with contact tracing and, you know, basically stopping the, the spread of the virus, right? Now, algorithms are now designed to give us posts and information ads that are tailor-made for us, right? If you're homophobic and you search for internet articles or videos that promote homophobia, then the algorithms will send you more posts as videos that support your worldview, right? Um, so, as I said just a few uh, minutes ago, this leads to confirmation biases, right? And it can kind of perpetuate oppressive ideologies um, simply because people are not being confronted with information that conflicts their views and that challenge their biases and, and, and views on the world, right? Now, importantly, Edward Snowden, uh, who is a NSA whistleblower, right? He revealed that the US government was not only conducting mass surveillance and data collection on its own population, but it was doing so throughout the entire world, right? You live in Barbados, you live in Guyana, you live in Botswana, <laughs> right? The US government is collecting data on you, right? Now, Edward Snowden was an employee at the NSA, and he worked there for years, right? And he had been promoted many times uh, 
to the point where he eventually had high-level security clearance and he had access to highly classified information, right? Now, Snowden helped design some of the programs that were used for mass surveillance operations, right? So he knew the ins and outs of them because he designed them. Um, but what's crucial to understand is that, and Snowden actually says this in his book, Permanent Record, right? He says, although you might design the technology that the government is using, right? You might not actually know. And in fact, a lot of people who work in tech, they design the tech, they design these, uh, you know, platforms or whatever, or programs, but they don't actually know the political implications of the programs. They don't know the policy uh, outcomes of these programs, right? So you could be a tech person and, you know, you could be completely a normal person, regular person with no... Um, bad intentions or anything but you design this program you design this technology and then the government takes this technology and uses it to infringe upon the rights of its citizens and that is exactly what is happening right and that is something that we should be very 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 concerned about right um but of course, um, there's plenty of in-depth information on the specifics of these mass surveillance programs, like the name of them, you know, what, which administration basically put them into practice, you know, the, the, the very specifics on them, right? But for the purposes of this discussion, we're not going to get into the specifics of mass surveillance programs, right? But following 9-11... President Bush, um, he began these mass surveillance programs, which were justified on the basis of counter-terrorism, right? Um, so, of course, everyone knows 9-11. Uh, After 9-11, security and surveillance in America was ramped up, right? Times a thousand, right? So, the Bush administration extended government powers um, so that they could access your emails they can access your phone records, bank records, etc. You know, if they suspected you as being a terrorist or a threat to national security, right? And these powers have since, since been extended by Obama. And now, most dangerously, uh, President Trump has these powers as well. So, many governments around the world have used these capabilities to spy on journalists and political opposition, right? As is the case in Julian Assange, right? Um, as we discussed in, in detail on the last episode, in, in a past episode, sorry, Julian Assange um, was subject to 24-7 surveillance um, by the British government and the US government and NATO allies alike, right? Um, but these, these surveillance programs are meant to intimidate you. Um, and they're basically meant to keep tabs on you and anyone who may have interest in contacting you or helping you out. Um, your family members, they're going to conduct surveillance on your family members, your lawyers, um, basically anyone who has contact with you. And we have seen that um, in the case of Julian Assange, right? And Julian Assange currently sits in, in, a, in a British prison for exposing U.S. war crimes. 
and his part persecution is being justified on the basis of him being a threat to U.S. national security by exposing government crimes and secrets, right? So, massive um, corruption taking place in, in, in governments that has been exposed by the likes of Julian Assange. They have imprisoned him. They have conducted mass surveillance on him. And they have the technological uh, capacity to do so, right? And they can do that to anyone, right? It's just whether or not they consider you a threat or not, right? Um, in the case of the Saudi Arabian regime, human rights organizations have criticized them for using tech surveillance to intimidate and silence and, and even physically imprison political crit critics and dissidents, right? Uh, recently in 2018, I don't know if you heard, but um, there was news of a, an assassination of a journalist called Jamal Khashoggi, right? So Jamal Khashoggi, he was a Washington Post journalist who was a very serious critic of the Saudi Arabian government. Um, and... A lawsuit uh, later revealed that the Saudi government was using an Israeli surveillance company to spy on Mr. Khashoggi, right? Now, as we can see, this is truly a global issue where the power of tech and surveillance is being used by authoritarian regimes all over the globe in order to suppress political opponents, political critics, and true speakers in general, right? Now, that is something that we should not take lightly um of course china is famous for a censorship and and use of surveillance to imprison activists and journalists who oppose the chinese communist party right and one of the most disturbing products of state surveillance are the misuse of big data and technology by the state uh in my mind it manifests in the chinese social credit system right cannot make this up now before i play this clip i i want to first say that i am in no way shape or form trying to single out uh china or chinese people um as we discussed in a previous episode um you know there's currently a massive propaganda campaign um and 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 an escalation towards war in the direction of china right of course this is led by the u.s government and and its allies, NATO allies, Australia, Japan, uh, the UK, etc. Right? It's it's very clear for everyone to see that the global community has been condemning China for the handling of the coronavirus. Um, the the global community has also condemned China for environmental degradation and general authoritarianism. Um, of the Chinese Communist Party, right? And these are all valid criticisms, right, that are levied towards China. Um, but the problem is that these, these are all criticisms which can be aimed at any one of the members of NATO, especially the US and UK, right? And, and this is typical hypocrisy, right? So we're going to play a clip now um, taken from YouTube from the France 24 English channel on YouTube. 
and they're basically describing the Chinese social credit system. So here we go. They're constantly monitored by facial recognition cameras that are able to instantly put a face to a name. Now the Chinese are also ranked, given a mark out of a possible 950 points. A score in the 700s is considered good, around the 500 mark is not. For now, the number is a sort of bank credit rating, keeping track of everyone's spending habits. I think being ranked is a good thing. A society has to have rules. It forces us to be well behaved. It may seem scary, but it's just like that here. We're used to it, and anyway, we don't have a choice. But in an effort to keep all of its subjects in line, Beijing is taking the system a step further in 2020. It's aggregating data gathered by banks, private companies and the state to rate if someone's a good or bad citizen. By using the most data possible, the so-called big data, the system will play an important role in rebuilding a moral society. The state will go over every detail of a person's life with a fine-tooth comb, a financial situation, spending habits, career, even behavior on social media. Criticizing the government online or displaying outward signs of wealth is a no-no. On the other hand, praising the party or giving blood increases your social credit. Xiao Wenwang is a model citizen. She lives in Nanjing, a testing ground for social ranking. Married with a child, she has a job in a retirement home, no debts, and she wouldn't dream of jaywalking. As a good citizen, I respect the rules of the road. If I didn't, I'd lose points on my social credit. In theory, everything can be taken into account in the social score, even the most innocuous errands like supermarket shopping. When Xiao Wen Wang makes an electronic payment, her purchases tell the state a lot about her. Buying cigarettes would count against her. On the other hand, nappies show she's an attentive mother. Beer could indicate alcoholism. She'd be better off buying water. In this pilot city of 8 million people, there are only 18,000 model citizens. For Xiao Wen Wang, there are perks to be had, such as paying half price for the bus. I get discounts for all public services, even at museums. And the library is free for me, thanks to my school. A good school brings benefits, but people with low scores lose rights. The cinema names and shames people considered untrustworthy, plastering their details, even their addresses across big screens. It's a matter of principle. Those people have to be condemned. Those people aren't honest, so they have to pay the price. It's only right to pay your debts. You have to blacklist those that don't. The Supreme Court has created a blacklist for so-called bad citizens, those whose ratings have dropped to zero. On it are companies, but also 23 million people to date. Among them is this journalist Liu Hu. He got a little too close to uncovering corruption among high-profile party members. After being sued for defamation by the subject of a story he'd written, he was blacklisted. He only realized when he tried to buy a train ticket and was told he was banned from traveling. That tells me I'm still on the blacklist. Punished because he's been branded untrustworthy by the state. Once you're blacklisted, you can no longer get a bank loan, start a business, buy an apartment, or even send your children to a private school. 
This social credit system is very disturbing. And you know, for me, it represents completely the dangers that misuse of technology and big data collection um, can pose to our rights and freedoms as human beings, right? Now, this power that surveillance technology gives to our governments in terms of monitoring, monitoring our day-to-day lives, in my mind, is completely immoral and should be viciously opposed by every single member of society. Fast forward to today, June 2nd, 2020. Good old 2020. (laughs) Uh, Protests have broken out in many cities across the U.S., right? The U.S. government right before our very eyes is brutalizing protesters through the use of police and military force. The President of the United States is using state violence against political dissidents. Protesters are being trapped by law enforcement through America's highly advanced surveillance technology, which includes facial recognition recognition capabilities, right? The very same things the U.S. government accuses the Chinese government of doing, they are now doing against their own citizens, right? No. Many of you have seen that a CNN journalist was arrested on live TV just a, f- a, f- a few days ago, right? Um, simply for covering the protests um, against police brutality and against um, violence, well, state violence in, 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 in our communities, right? Well, in their communities, sorry. Um, and, you know, they're using technology to track protesters, to apprehend protesters, uh, which is why you will see a, a lot of protesters telling people to protect their face and, and to use masks to protect their face because the government has a highly sophisticated surveillance state. Um, you know, if any anyone has been to America or if there are any American citizens listening to this podcast, which they are, and I thank you very much for doing so. You guys know firsthand that there's cameras everywhere, right? There is no inch of ground that a camera um, doesn't pick up, right? And this is very concerning, right? Because President Trump is using these surveillance capabilities to silence political critics, right? That is no different from what Hitler was doing in Nazi Germany. That is no different from what fascists and fascist regimes in Europe all those years ago were doing to their citizens. It's just that now that fascism is enhanced and aided by mass surveillance and and the invasion of our privacy rights by corporations and our governments, right? Majority of us are not criminals. Majority of us are not terrorists. We're not persons of interest, right? But I do not believe that governments and multinational corporations should be able to use this technology to trap and control us in these ways, right? We have created a tech dystopia, which in some ways reflects that in the famous Matrix trilogy, right? Now, one of the most terrifying scenes in the Matrix for me is when um, Neo is rescued from that um, 
basically was attached to the whole machine that was basically sucking energy from human beings, right? Um, absolutely incredibly disturbing um, imagery. But one of my things, my, sorry, <laughs> that's funny. One of my things, greatest fears, you know, has manifested itself into reality. A surveillance state that watches and judges our every move, which is controlled by an elite group of oligarchs. Whether it's Pokemon Go, Google Earth, the Snapchat location map, the location services on your phone, we have consented to the reality that our every move can be tracked and traced by anyone with the capabilities and interest in doing so. If you are someone like Assange or Snowden or Jamal Khashoggi or anyone who exposes government corruption and reveals the truth to the public, then you will be hunted fiercely with the full power of these technologies. As we have seen, if you are protesting police brutality, you're organizing grassroots political movements that are opposed to these powerful oppressive forces, then you are also trapped and pursued by the state with the full power of these technologies. For those who say, man, I don't do nothing wrong. I don't have to worry or care, you know. I don't mind that I don't have privacy because what I'm doing in my home is nothing illegal. You know, as a regular person, I just watch Netflix and go to work. And, you know, that's my life. So I don't have anything to hide. To those people, I say, one day you might be safe, right? But when they decide to come for you, or anyone who dares speak out against them, as we have clearly seen from the various examples um, in this podcast, there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do about it. That is the power that we have given to our governments. And we must really ask ourselves if these types of mass surveillance societies are the ones that we want to live in. And more importantly, are these societies the type of societies that we want our children and future generations to live in? Right? And that's a very uh, important, well, sorry, that's a very difficult thing to grapple with as human beings, right? We enjoy this technology so much. And this is not anti-technology rant, right? I love technology. But we enjoy technology so much. We benefit so much from technology and from web services and, and, and you know, these platforms that we use in our day-to-day lives, right? But we have to be wary of the power that we not only give to these tech, com- tech companies, but that we give to the government. Because one day there will be a leader, right? Everybody's not Obama who is nice, right? Who is who's nice and going to smile and going to play softball, right? One day, there's going to be a leader like Donald Trump, like the Communist Party of China, like the Saudi Arabian regime, like the UK government, who says, we are going to use this technology to persecute anyone who speaks out against us. And that, that 
that right there, guys, that is a very, very dangerous um, power that we, we've given to, to governments, right, and to corporations, right? So I want to say thank you for listening to another episode that I've been thinking about it. Um, I really had fun making this episode. Um, I'm looking forward to putting out more episodes in the future. If you have any suggestions or, or questions or, or, or topics that you would like me to discuss, you can you can follow me on, on Twitter or Instagram at I've Been Thinking About It Podcast. That's I-B-T-B-I Podcast. Um, so yeah, if you enjoy this episode, you can share it with friends, you can share it with family, you can get in touch with me on socials to let me know. Um, but once again, this is, thank you for listening to another episode that I've been thinking about it. My name is Christian Yearwood. Peace.